Andreas Noe is a medical doctor, a Rhodes Scholar, and one of the clinicians involved with the development and trialling of the AstraZeneca vaccine. So as well as vast experience he has working on malaria and malaria vaccines, Noe has also spent a decade focused on the health and well-being of children and adolescents. He has now developed high-level COVID-19 expertise via these various projects and has led contract tracing teams in the UK. He's currently working at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and we thought it would be good to get him on for this first episode in the series of Michaels and Alexander Explains that looks at the COVID-19 recovery. So joining us is, is Andreas and there's, there's so many things we'd love to talk to you about and we've only got, we've only got a half an hour. But first of all, the fact that you've worked in the UK in this space and in Australia now in this space, what can you see of the different approaches between the UK and Australia to um, the pandemic and the vaccine rollout? Hi, Shannon. Thanks for having me. It's pretty hard to say, uh, pinpoint the exact differences, but broad brush strokes in terms of um, the United Kingdom. I mean, obviously, at the start of the pandemic, they they kind of hesitated for about two to four weeks uh, to initiating a national lockdown. Um, and that was around, I think, the late late March, um, because by then the infection was widespread throughout Europe and there's probably tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of cases um, already in, in Europe with a sort of gross under-reporting. Um, there was only sort of brief border restrictions with China um, and much of the transmission throughout the first half and um, throughout this of 2020 um, occurred in households and from healthcare workers to, house, to households. So, um, so that was the kind of context and it, it kind of went away. There was, there was low infection rates throughout summer, the European summer, that is, of 2020. And there was a, an attempt to, to regional lockdowns, um, which didn't really work through the second and third and fourth quarter of, of 2020. But then that necessitated really a national lockdown, essentially from November uh, to, um, I think it was probably uh, June, um, with sort of a phased exit uh, leading to the the Freedom Day, as it's as it's called, uh, in 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 the UK on July nineteen of this year, um, and and but really that that occurred in the context of a, a tremendous uh, upscaling of vaccine production capacity, uh, as well as um, vaccine messaging and and vaccine procurement deals. Um, so there was like a huge vaccine blitz where sixty percent of the UK population was vaccinated over three months, essentially this year, um, and. And, uh, and, you know, now that started to, to tail off a bit um, and the harder to reach populations are only starting to get vaccinated now, really. And, and currently, you know, over 81% of the population is vaccinated, over 16 years old, um, and their, their um, hospitalisation and, and infection rates are in the, the low low thousands and low hundreds, respectively. And those are the important metrics to look at when, when you've got a highly vaccinated population is the death and, and hospitalisation rate. It no, no longer really becomes about case case numbers. Uh, it's about hospitalisation rates. So, so that's the UK context. Um, slow to start, really got going in towards the end of um, 2020, and then now has is really reaching, I think, the limits of, of what can be done in terms of um, what we've seen so far. They'll have to have, the, have, to have a bit more of a think of how, how they can extend vaccination coverage. Contrasting that to Australia, I mean, I'm sure you guys are aware there was a national lockdown um, for a number of months. Uh, Australia instituted very tight border restrictions. The Melbourne lockdown of 2020 was um, was a huge, huge monumental effort by the public 
um, because essentially they're the ones that really did the work there um, and uh, they sort of conquered a COVID wave that uh, I don't think anyone else in the world uh, was successful in doing. Um, and uh, and then 2021, I think that's where things really um, started to become a bit more complicated for not only the federal but state governments where um, there was a bit more of a fa fragmented response, uh, the vaccination rollout in terms of procurement, messaging and um, and uh, education uh, started to be a bit more difficult. Um, and obviously there was things that could have been anticipated and, and unanticipated, for example, the AstraZeneca and clotting. Um, that was something that was very difficult to communicate. Um, and uh, I think probably left a bit to be desired. Um, and that lack of urgency to really vaccinate, um, Scott Morrison said, you know, it's not a race, um, but really it, it was and it is. Um, but it's not a race against other people. It's a race against the, the virus itself, which I'm sure you've both heard. Um, and that, that compounded the difficulties in messaging and led to a state where now, you know, something like 44, 45% of the population over 16 are vaccinated, fully vaccinated. Um, and I think today or tomorrow we'll tick over the 1%, sorry, the 70% one dose uh, vaccinated and, and around about 1,500 cases nationally occurring every day and and in this context like i mentioned before it is important to look at cases because there's such a low vaccination rate cases are directly linked to um uh to hospitalization and deaths uh whereas when we reach a higher proportion of vaccination then we'll start to see a bit of an uncoupling between cases and hospitalizations and deaths um so so really there's quite a difference in the way that, that it was approached. 2020 was really the hard work, I think, for the UK, um, both in terms of people dying, people going to hospital, but then also a lot of procurement deals, a lot of uh, urgency being placed on the government. Uh, and 2021, I think, in a microcosm, it similarly is, is what's happening in Australia. Um, another similarity is that, um, the, that there's been an inequity in terms of the impact. Um, so if we really look at this um, from a broad scale, uh, you know, in the UK, culturally and linguistically diverse populations were, were affected um, disproportionately by COVID. Um, and the same is, is happening here now. Um, and then previous to, this, to these past two uh, months, um, uh, you know, the, the economic impacts were borne by culturally and linguistically diverse communities um, and young parents, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, people with unstable incomes already. So I think those are some of the broad brush similarities, but then also some of the broad brush differences. And we'll talk a little bit more about the specifics of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which you have worked on the clinical trials of. So I'm interested there in the switch that we're trying to flick at the moment, which is really an upscaling our vaccine potential, which back in March, obviously Scott Morrison now famously said it wasn't a race. And that was because Australia at the time was able to manage a very low caseload and didn't have a strain like Delta. So I guess what I'm asking you is what your assessment has been on the messaging we've seen from the top end of town and from government as we've kind of changed our path away from, you know, being in the grip of a pandemic? Yeah. So, I mean, look, I'll just um, kind of correct you there. I was a very tiny part of the Oxford team. Um, 
despite what my mother might have you have you know, um, I, I didn't invent the AstraZeneca vaccine myself. I was only a very part of a very tiny part of the team. So, um, in terms of the messaging uh, of the government, it, it was a really tough, tough, um, tough game to play. The government uh, was uh, was facing, uh, you know, or is facing a pandemic um, where there's uncertainty of information. It's ever changing, um, and uh, it, it's a volatile situation, really. Uh, I think there's there's a number of things that, like I mentioned before, left um, left something to be desired. Um, one of which is having an effective and sort of a solitary, um, unified message. Um, whether that's we need a rush or we need to continue and upscale our vaccination as soon as possible, or whether that's the AstraZeneca vaccine is not safe or it is safe. Um, and we should vaccinate this this uh, particular part of our population. They they there was never really consistency in messaging, um, and uh, that was borne out across time um, in the federal government, where um, where they said we're following the science, where where um, you know we're going to listen to Atagi what they say. Um, and or you know whether that's uh, across the regions whether Queensland is against the federal government or whether Queensland disagrees with Victoria's uh, vaccine policy I think um, those kind of unify unif unification of the message uh, is really necessary in in communication um, whether that's in pandemics or public health or you know any other um, any other field so I think the communication could have been done a bit better. Um, and I think uh, this is probably a, something that politicians are great at, um, but blaming others. At the end of the day, um, ATAGI, which is the peak body that, um, that uh, advises the government on, on immunisation, their job is, is never to, to dictate policy. Uh, their job was to provide an impartial and credible source of information for the government to base on which to base decisions. Um, to then say that Atagi has made it difficult for the government to move forward with the vaccination rollout um, is is just sort of untrue. They're providing the information as it stands. So, um, so I think that's those are two of the difficult um, areas of contention. I I, I would see. Um, and uh, but I mean this isn't like I said this isn't new to vaccines and public health uh, science messaging science communication is something for which has been systemically underfunded and disregarded um, throughout you know the past twenty years really um, and it's something that for which Australia would stand to benefit you know, I mean you, if you look at all of the medical funding for uh, COVID nineteen. All of the medical research funding, zero dollars up until June this year or July, I think it was, went to science communication, behavioural modification, qualitative research to understand how vaccines can be implemented on a wide scale. And, and that's just an alarming statistic because we spent hundreds of millions of dollars on these therapeutics, on these vaccines, that, that's great work. And I'm not saying it's any less valuable, but if we can't, uh, make someone feel comfortable enough to get a vaccine, then that it's it's not really um, it's missing the point, and it's missing the, the arm really. If the jab's missing the arm, it's missing the point.
to put it into a short, pithy statement. You mentioned earlier about the way things rolled out in the UK to Australia and, and perhaps the impact in the UK early. Um, it was a much greater impact than what we saw in Australia actually motivated people to take up um, vaccination quicker than we did in Australia. But probably the main thing that the miscommunication perhaps or the contradiction between different different jurisdictions on the AstraZeneca and its and its safety. Is there a way that you would have explained that blood blood clotting risk to the public or how, how would you have approached it that may have been different to the way it ro- got rolled out? So, I mean, I, I don't think my, the, the sort of the stock standard uh, explanation that I have is any different to the one that's, um, that's, widely uh said by many other experts um uh you know i the astrazeneca vaccine is incredibly safe the the risks of the clotting syndrome uh, are extremely rare um it depends on the age but it's about one in a hundred thousand people one in a hundred thousand people is hard to envisage i don't even probably i can't even really envisage a hundred people um but to put it into context Let's say an MCG can carry hundred, can hold a hundred thousand people. Mm. That means that your risk of getting a clot is one in one full MCG. And even if you do get a clot, um, the risks of dying are, you know, less than one in fifty. Or so. Uh, those are the kind of numbers that it's, it starts to get quite difficult to understand. Um, and so, obviously, that's the risks. Um, the benefits are that you you can potentially uh, avoid getting infected with with COVID, albeit the risks of that are low were low up until recently. Um, and I, I think the so that's the kind of spiel that usually people give, right? The dif- the difficulty becomes is how do you deliver that with nuance? And with um, with patients and addressing an individual's concerns, expectations, ideas about vaccines at, at a mass level, at a mass stage, you know, um, whether that's through the print media, um, social media, um, press conferences, that's that's not something that is, you know, you can just flick a switch and suddenly you have the capacity to do. That takes years to develop, and there's there's that's there's experts that still struggle with that. You know, I I went for a meeting with one of the Otagi members the day before the, um, the, the change in the age group was, was, um, was announced for changing AstraZeneca to over 60s rather than over 50s. And, and she said to me, look, I, I have, I've done this for 15 years now and I still just don't really know how to announce this. And I'm so glad that I'm not the one that has to announce it because mm. it's a tough area and it's not something that you can communicate easily. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean it's it's tough, it's complex, and it, it is fascinating, really, because this is this is the work, and this is that the work that needs to be done, really. And as an everyday Joe blogs, I th- and from what you've already said, like I think the devil in this situation was the fact that we had so many changes of the policy, and we also had different politicians and chief health officers in different states giving us different bits of information and contradicting each other which I think for the public can kind of lead this to this kind of reaction of, oh, my God, it's all too hard and I just want to go get a Pfizer vaccine. Um, did you kind of sense that that, I know you've kind of said that was the problem, but did you sense that was like the major part of the issue? Look, I mean, I, again, like this kind of touches on on vaccine hesitancy and um, 
and understanding why people don't get vaccination. And, and really there's a whole, this is a whole area of research that mm. is just jumping out. And there are a huge number of people that are doing some great work on this. Margie Ganchen at the um, uh, Murdoch Children's Research Institute is one of them. Um, so there's a lot of work going on in Melbourne specifically about this, but, but, but really this comes down to um, understanding human behaviour. And, and it's fascinating and complex um, and, and what influences our, our motivations and our actions, really. So um, our motivations are, are influenced by not only our thoughts and feelings, but by social norms, uh, by social processes. Um, and then the bridge between our motivation towards action is then definitely influenced by things like practicalities, like how easy is it for me to go to the vaccine centre? How easy is it for me to book in does it cost anything? What's the service like? Do I get made to feel like I'm a burden, that I'm there, or that sort of thing? Um, so, so, yeah, I think it's, it's easy to blame it on contradictions between uh, politicians, but ultimately um, it's much more than just, you know, this he said, he said she said kind of thing um, and, and, and bringing it down to that. Um, I think one of the areas that that medical researchers and that social scientists really um, that I, I find quite interesting is this this area of heuristics these um, these shortcuts that we take to make uh, to make decisions really uh, in our brain because you know we don't want to expend the the, the mental energy really um, and and two of the the heuristics or two of these shortcuts that have become so prevalent. Um, and are so glaringly obvious in this pandemic, particularly relating to vaccine hesitancy, is that of um, the, the, the availability heuristic, which is we, we think about the first thing, um, we think about the most available information. And what was the most available uh, piece of information, you know, three or four months ago was AstraZeneca causes clots, and that's all you need to know. So everyone that was going to get AstraZeneca they were afraid that they were going to get clots, despite what I've already said, which is one in a hundred thousand, even smaller chances of death. Um, and so that kind of heuristic really came to bear in stopping um, people getting vaccinated. The other is that of um, really of, of omission, where we prefer to not take an action, um, even though that even though that omission might result in greater harm than having done an action. That has lower risks. So, for example, you know we won't get vaccinated because we're scared of that one in a hundred thousand chance of getting a clot, or one in one in uh, fifty thousand chance of getting an anaphylaxis due to the Pfizer vaccine. But we don't think about the risk of getting COVID and you know getting a massive clot in our lungs because of COVID. Um, so, so yeah, I, 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 I to, to cut a long answer short, I, I think. We really need to find out more about this, and and not only just across the general population, but in within specific populations, um, because that's where the that's the work that's where the work needs to be done, and that's what will get us to ninety five percent of the population fully vaccinated. Do you think, in some ways, I suppose, in a perverse way, the fact that we appear to have handled twenty twenty quite well, as in we were able lockdowns were, were successful. Um, there were deaths, but not not by any degree to what we were seeing and hearing about overseas. Do you think that almost lessened the impact and 
and therefore didn't make the threat real when you as you say when someone lines up the will I will I get the vaccination or will I will I not bother because I'm not seeing it on my you know I'm not seeing the effect of covid to my friends family and peers yeah I mean I, I definitely agree I, I think um it, in a certain sense um Australia was the victim of its own success um to a certain degree but that's not to say, you know, a huge proportion of our population has family members and friends overseas. We are a travelling nation um, to, a, to a certain degree. Um, so I think uh, our broader sense of, of the world, I, I hope, is, uh, is, is more than just what we see on the streets around us. But, uh, but yeah, to a certain extent, I, I think we were the victims of our own success. But, but that, you know, that's, that's the story with vaccination. Um, Vaccines have made measles disappear. They've made polio disappear, um, and people think that these that these diseases aren't um, are something that can be taken lightly. Um, and yet, I've seen measles and I've seen uh, cases of vaccine preventable diseases that end up making people disabled. You know, uh, for years and for for decades. So, um, so. I, yeah, that, that's the story of vaccination, really, and end of public health, really. I think that kind of a logical flow-in from what you've said there is obviously a lot of those public health challenges of that scale for things like polio, like we don't realise that's an issue because we all just get vaccinated for it at such a young age. So there's almost an extent to which or a complacency with something like COVID, which is obviously a global pandemic of an entirely new sort, where we kind of don't really think that you know, that sort of thing can happen here or there can be a disease that gets us because our health system has been so effective for so long. Is that like a reasonable thing to kind of think after the conversation that you guys have just had? I would disagree with that because, I mean, we do we do have vaccine-preventable diseases and we do, there is a, a gross inequity in our society that was present um, even before the pandemic. Um, you know, you just have to probably, well, you have to go maybe three hours out of Perth um, which is where I'm from, from originally, um, and you can see uh, kids with scabies or kids with rheumatic heart disease, that diseases that have been all but eliminated throughout the rest of the world. Um, so, yes, there was to a certain degree uh, um, an expectation that we would be protected um, to, uh, from the pandemic, but, um, but, but really, you know, going forward, I think it's it's clear to see that just because we're an island nation with a stable health system and stable economy doesn't mean that we can avoid every negative impact. Um, and 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 really, that's that's very important for people to recognise um, and for, for for decision makers to recognise because when the next pandemic comes, I'm not saying I'm saying that very deliberately. When um, we need to be prepared and learning from COVID and then learning from the past um, 18 months uh, will put us in good stead to then pivot to the next one, um, which will happen, you know. We talked a little bit before about the UK and where they're at now and that they've hit a certain a certain figure on, on vaccination that, that we are trying to reach in Australia. Assuming that we do hit that 80% rate that, that's often been termed as the hinge point for us to go back to normal. What does the next 12 months after that time actually look like in your mind? Like what, what do you actually see? How normal is, is normal? Um, and, and what, 
what differences in life will there be from pre-COVID? Just grab my crystal ball out and uh, start <laughs> forecasting the future. Um, so, look, I, firstly, I, I think it's very important for me to stress that, you know, it's not over yet. We, we have a long way to go um, before we reach 80%. Um, the, the hospitals are, and the healthcare workers and, and, and people that work much harder than myself will be broke, will be taken to almost broken point, breaking point, if not, um, well past it. Um, so, uh, but, you know, having said that at 80%, there will be flare ups of COVID. There will be localized lockdowns. Um, there will be outbreaks in clusters, um, resulting in morbidity and mortality, death and disease really. Um, and, and there's kind of no way, no two ways about that. The national plan, um, puts it very neatly and nicely um, into these category phases A to D um, where we move in between these by certain rates of vaccination. Um, a lot of the assumptions, a lot of the assumptions that went into the, that national planning and that 80% are, for example, good testing, isolating and, um, and, and quarantine really. Um, and uh, one of the things that we've noticed is that those capacities, those public health capacities start to break down when we reach high case numbers, which is what which is what's happening currently in Sydney and in Victoria. Um, and and to to sort of to put it bluntly, we're at 80%, if there's tens of thousands of cases happening per day, it's going to be very difficult to do anything but um, lock down regions. Um, without having widespread disease or uh, uh, difficulties in healthcare systems. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying just about the number of ventilators or, you know, there's not enough ventilators, but I'm talking about the right staff in the right place at the right time um, with the right equipment kind of thing. So um, I, th I think the 80% is has a lot of assumptions behind it that may or may not be borne out. Um, so that's the kind of the doom and gloom. Um, the critical factors to our success, I think, um, will be maintenance of high vaccination rates. So getting the vaccines to the hard to reach populations, really, um, because the last ones that are vaccinated are, all, are always the hardest and the last people to be reached are always the hardest, no matter in, in what sphere of public health or in what sphere of, um, of, cl of clinical medicine. Um, so that's, so that's number one, uh, high vaccination rates. Number two, sensible border protections, I think will be necessary, you know, probably till the end of next year. Um, sensible border protections being um, uh, maybe vaccination passports, maybe stratification of risk of countries. Um, so if someone's coming from a high burden country, do we need to put them into an isolation for two weeks? low burden country might be able to do home quarantine if they're vaccinated, for example. Um, and then that ties to purpose-built quarantine facilities. Um, and, and that's also important for future-proofing our country. You know, we're an island nation that relies heavily on migration. Um, so if we want to keep our, that going in the future, we need to have a way for people to come safely to the country even if there's a pandemic. Um, and then I think lastly, it's um, 
really, which is the thing that's closest to my heart and I suspect to many people's hearts, is vaccinating uh, 12 to 18-year-olds or 12 to 16-year-olds because the national plan so far really just looks at over 16-year-olds and there's a high transmission potential um, for people that are young. Um, yes, COVID might not affect them um, uh, as bad as older age groups. They have, they still have the, the capacity to transmit um, quite a lot. So, um, so discounting 12 to 16 year olds, despite that being a small proportion of the population, their transmission potential is great. So um, missing them would be a disadvantage not only to the rest of the population but also to them because then COVID may be a disease of children, which, you know, giving all of the all of the future of our country um, a disease that we don't know much about doesn't sound very um, sort of enticing to me, and I'm sure it doesn't to anyone else in, in the country. You've kind of followed quite logically into where I was going to go there because obviously your next career move is going to be into pediatrics. So, you know, is there the potential for this virus to, and you've kind of alluded to this there, like obviously there's some some concerns around what we don't know about COVID and there's potential that we don't know what the impacts are going to be on those younger generations if they get left behind. Yeah, so look, I'll, I'll be very clear. Um, COVID is overwhelmingly an asymptomatic or very mildly symptomatic infection in children so it it's it is a mild disease in children the rates of hospitalization are very low um less than one well, less than one percent um will, will require hospitalization the risks of um adverse outcomes like a um you may have heard about this kawasaki like disease or this more this infl inflammatory syndrome after COVID is exceedingly rare um and uh and, and then long COVID, despite there being some reports recently that, that it may be up to as high as 7%, if not higher, um, that, that is still rare um, in, in children. And so, so the picture at the moment is that COVID is disproportionately affects older people. So that's, that's saying that's, you know, the current state as it is. Moving to the future, which, as I said, I don't have a crystal ball and it's, it is very hard to predict. Um, if we just vaccinate over 16-year-olds, it will it, it will find a way to replicate in children and it will find a way to transmit um, across in schools in to, to parents that are vaccinated and there's still the capacity for breakthrough infections. So, um, so we need to... A, vaccinate over 12-year-olds because there is now a vaccine licensed for over 12-year-olds and that's um, uh, both mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna. Um, that's number one. Number two, we need to wait to see what the trials say about um, safety in uh, six-month to 12-year-olds. Um, and, you know, I, I, would, um, I would hesitate to guess at saying that the vaccine is safe and effective uh, for those age groups and then if, if it is then we need to continue vaccinating um, those, those populations um, but but really I think that again is taking just a look at the, the sort of the children um, children in Australia but we really um, should also think about this at a, at a broader regional level um, because if there's healthcare workers that haven't received any doses of any vaccine in Papua New Guinea, for example, then it would be, you know, 
very important for our for our region and for that country um, to for those people to have the, those vaccines um, because like we saw earlier this year um, you know and to use a short pithy statement when we're all not safe until everyone's safe um, uh, uh, you know so I think we really need to just broaden our scope and and take a, a much more global look at this. And I know that you said at the top of the show that it was only a very small part that you played on a team that was involved in developing um, this vac- this vaccine that we've been talking about a fair bit today. But uh, and whether it's yourself or whether it's your peers or the 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 belonging that you may have had from being having some in- level of involvement, how does it feel when? You know, something that you work on, which is very important, but you may have been working on it for, I don't know, not not this vaccine, but in general in the area for a decade or so, let's say, um, and, it, and it goes relatively under the radar. And then at this time, it has become the most focused on um, media story really in the world uh, as to what's happening with this vaccine. When is this vaccine going to be ready? Is it safe? That... That scrutiny. How do you feel when your work is projected on to the bigger stage, or, or or the the work of your peers is projected on the bigger stage with all that scrutiny or criticism or, or praise? How do, how does that feel for you and the people that you work with? The first thing is to acknowledge the fact that um, these vaccines were were developed by um, by scientists. Yes, but at the end of the day, they came to licensure through the work of tens of thousands of volunteers and and people that were willing to get vaccinated so that's so that's the first thing it the the scientists are a very small part of the team mm. um and uh and so so yeah there, there is a lot more sort of pride in this um from from volunteers and that that was one of the overwhelming things that i that i heard from from volunteers that i've met in the clinic is that you know they were so proud to be part of something uh bigger and part of the vaccine effort um, and that you know that they were just doing what they could really um because they felt like they were powerless really at sitting at home so so um so that's the kind of uh i think it is we're part of a big team um the the other things i mean i i i feel uh, sort of quite empowered being able to 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 chat to people and being able to say look let's let's have a chat about why it is that you're not interested in this vaccine? What's your specific concerns? Um, and and being able to answer questions um, and have difficult conversations is um, is incredibly empowering. Um, yeah, and obviously that you people tend to focus on the negatives, which are the criticisms and the critiques. And um, oh, this um, this decision was the wrong one at the right time, or the right one at the wrong time, or whatever. Um, but we we tend to forget all of the you know the nine good conversations and the mm. nine people that we actually did have a positive outcome and they ended up going and having a vaccine. Um, so so I feel that yes there are critiques but overwhelmingly the experience is positive and um, and it's important to to sort of stabilize ourselves in those um in those positive experiences and and, um, and I guess uh, the the sort of positive critiques, really. You kind of mentioned there, and you've mentioned throughout this chat, you know, how much work there is still to be done in science communication. I guess broadly for your 
field, there's a lot of, you know, news about, you know, new vaccine candidates. For example, the UQ vaccine candidate is back in redevelopment. So I guess my question for you is obviously we're looking to make, you know, to get research into changing human behavior going. But in terms of actual technologies, are there further developments that that we can make in the next 18 months that will be similarly amazing to what we've been able to do in the past 18 months? And again, it's not, it's probably a bit of a crystal ball question, but what are we hoping to find by developing more vaccines? Like what change are we hoping they'll generate for us as this pandemic yeah. kind of continues? I think um, we will look back on COVID and think, that did such wonders for vaccines and vaccine technologies um, that that transformed really the progress of vaccines in the 21st century. Um, and, and I say that because, you know, the, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, the, a lot of the technology behind that was developed for malaria vaccines. Um, my, my PhD supervisor, he spent the better part of his whole life um, working for a malaria vaccine using the technology that that is the backbone for the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. And then all of a sudden, within 18 months, they had a, a vaccine that had been given to 500 billion people um, from the time which the sequence was published to um, June this year, I think it was. So um, so these these things don't, they don't happen in isolation is the first thing that I would say. Um, and whilst, yes, the UK vaccine is, is at the moment a COVID vaccine candidate, their specific technology is all about pandemic preparedness and using a, essentially it's like a platform where you can just plug in and play the the, the, the actual, um, the, the pathogen or the disease that you want. So theoretically you could use it for um, the, the next coronavirus or for a, a cancer vaccine or, um, or you know a hepatitis B vaccine, that, those sorts of things. So, so yes, COVID vac- the the COVID uh, UQ vaccine is important, and, and that's important because it will translate to other diseases, um, and the insights that we generate from that may be able to help us um, move forwards in terms of um, other diseases. Um, I, I think the I think the lessons that we learn in terms of science communication for this for this from this pandemic. Um, Will will also helpfully hopefully move, help us move forwards um, in terms of how to put in the groundwork um, before a pandemic and having grassroots links um, to then quickly deploy and quickly be able to um, roll out uh, vaccines throughout you know communities. So I, I ho- I'm hopeful that this will help us for the next disease that comes along, but then also to cure those diseases that have been neglected uh, for decades. So you, you, you see that the, this is a continuum. This is not, it's not a discrete project that we're working on. We're working on COVID-19 now where we are, we are going to take the lessons of it to, to use in a, a lot of different ways over the next 20, 30, 40, 100 years. Definitely. Uh, the, um, you know the, the work that led to the Pfizer vaccine started in the 1990s. It was mm. it was literally just someone saying, "Oh, I'm going to inject some RNA into a mouse and see if I can generate a protein." I mean, it was obviously much more eloquent than that, but I'm just not capable of describing it. Um, but <laughs> but so so yeah, that 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 stuff doesn't just happen overnight, and good science doesn't happen overnight. Much like good. Um, qualitative research doesn't happen overnight. It, it requires decades 
of brilliant minds consistently chipping it away at it, getting it wrong, getting it wrong, and then eventually getting the right step in the right place at the right time. You know? One final question from me, which might seem very, very obvious, uh, Andreas, but if someone you knew was vaccine hesitant, what would you say to them? What's the first thing you'd say to them? I mean, so I, I, would, I would take a step back. I wouldn't say I would try and ask them about why it is that they're um, what their concerns are, what their ideas about vaccination are, and, and what their what their expectations are. Really, um, I think uh, in this day and age, it's it's very easy to to paint someone as anti-vax or as as vaccine hesitant. But but really, that that we we lose the nuance in the, in our individuality there, and we we stop seeing people for who they are. So um, if it's uh, someone that's uh, had endometriosis that and they're they're scared that they might be infertile, then exploring those fears and really and engaging with them earnestly and honestly, um, and and trying to understand their reasons for um, just delaying their vaccination a bit and, and reassuring them that, for example, in this case, um, that you know the Pfizer vaccine has been given to millions of people that are pregnant and there's been no increased rate of stillbirths or preterm birth or or whatever it may be um so i i I hate to say it but it is it is a much more of an individual discussion that that requires care and attention and and um and some humanity i think i think that's a a really strong message to finish on i know this conversation has made me want to go back to year 11 and reopen my biology textbook Um, i'm sure you feel the same shannon uh thanks so much for joining us uh, andre it's been an absolute pleasure and uh, i'm very grateful for your time and i know our firm is as well my pleasure if if i can just finish with maybe just a a few quick messages if you haven't been vaccinated please at least have the conversation about getting vaccinated Um, if you know someone that hasn't been vaccinated please talk to them and and just and have a chat about them to them about why why that is and uh, and if you have the capacity and you're willing then donate to covax to the covax initiative so that you can vaccinate or you can help vaccinate a healthcare worker or, or someone else throughout the world thanks very much no worries. and shannon and i will be back next week with the second episode of our series on covid recovery with Paul Guerra, who is the CEO of the Victorian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. We'll see you then.